Hello. My name is Tapio Maseba, and this is the Commercial Awareness Podcast, Episode 60. First, some headlines. The UK government is to pay £400 million for a 45% stake in OneWeb, the Low Earth Orbit Satellite Broadband Network Company. DWF has launched a mentoring scheme in which partners who qualify during the 2008 financial crisis will mentor trainees facing a qualification round with fewer NQ roles available. In aviation news, British Airways is retiring its entire Boeing 747 fleet four years early, amounting to 10% of its planes as a result of the economic downturn brought by the pandemic. In further law firm updates, Denton's is to permanently close its Aberdeen and Watford offices, with those working there to permanently work from home. Osborne Clark and Bird and Bird have brought back a portion of previously furloughed staff. In High Street news, Boots is cutting 4,000 jobs, John Lewis is cutting 1,300 jobs, and Burger King could cut up to 1,600 jobs. In a follow-up from episode 56 and the British Airlines' challenge of the government's blanket 14-day self-isolation rules, Linklaters has successfully reached a settlement for the airlines, resulting in the government now adopting a risk-based program focusing on individual countries. And finally, spending on digital advertising will overtake traditional media advertising for the first time this year. If you'd like to read more on any of these stories, links as always are in the description. Today's format is two longer reads. The first of the longer reads is that the European Commission is set to file a formal antitrust complaint against Amazon over the treatment of third-party sellers and is investigating Apple for its own antitrust violations. Let's start with Amazon. The European Commission had Amazon on its radar in 2018, announcing a formal investigation the following year. At the time, Margaret Verstager, EC head, said in a press release, quote, E-commerce has boosted retail competition and brought more choice and better prices. We need to ensure that large online platforms don't eliminate these benefits through anti-competitive behavior. I've therefore decided to take a very close look at Amazon's business practices and its dual role as marketplace and retailer to assess its compliance with EU competition rules, end quote. Amazon's questionable practices are twofold. The Commission paid particular attention to the agreements Amazon had with third parties and the famous buy box. First of all, every Amazon marketplace seller agrees to some standard terms to sell products on Amazon. However, some of those terms give Amazon permission to analyze and use third party seller data. As you can imagine, this could become anti competitive if Amazon uses that data to find out which items sell best and therefore start selling their own Amazon-branded items, potentially at a cheaper price or with more promotion, thus undercutting the competition. But we don't actually have to imagine, as the Wall Street Journal, earlier this year, claimed that Amazon's employees have used the third-party seller data to develop Amazon's own line of products, even though the company had internal rules forbidding such a practice. As for the buy box, it's something you may or may not be aware of, but if you use Amazon, there are often multiple sellers for the same product. However, you are often streamlined into using a seller Amazon sets as the most viable through the add to basket and buy icons on the right side of the screen. But below those buy now and add to basket icons, you can also see a section that reads other sellers. 
So yes, you do have the option to buy from these other sellers, but since over 80% of purchases are used by clicking that buy or add to basket box, the seller that wins the so-called buy box is best placed to sell their products. Since Amazon uses its marketplace data to determine who gets the buy box, the EC has been investigating whether the data it uses is anti-competitive and whether, once again, items sold by Amazon automatically win buy box real estate. With that said, the Wall Street Journal reported that the European Commission is now planning on filing formal antitrust charges against Amazon for its treatment of third-party sellers. This probably means that the EC has found Amazon's practices to be a breach of Articles 101 and 102 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, or TFEU. Article 101 prohibits anti-competitive agreements, quote, that prevent, restrict, or distort competition within the EU single market, end quote. Article 102, quote, prohibits the abuse of a dominant market position, end quote. Though there is no deadline for the formal filing of charges, if Amazon is found to have violated the EU's competition laws, it could be fined up to 10% of its annual turnover. Quite a pretty penny. Now, let's talk about Apple. This is actually a direct update from episode 12. What a trip down memory lane, what a callback. In case you haven't been around since episode 12, let me get you up to speed. In episode 12, you spoke of how Spotify filed an antitrust complaint against Apple. This was because of practices Spotify saw as anti-competitive in the App Store. Along with the filing of this complaint, they launched a website called Time to Play Fair, where they publicly listed their accusations of anti-competitive behavior. The first accusation was the 30% app tax Apple issued for in-app purchases, which applications developed by Apple did not have to pay. Second, this in-app purchase tax meant that if Spotify did not want to make sales subject to the tax, such as selling premium membership upgrades in-app, there would be no way for Spotify and other third parties to directly communicate with users to upgrade in other ways. And thirdly, Spotify alleged that the App Store would reject some Spotify updates to keep Apple Music as a faster improving service. And so, the update to that story is, the European Commission opened two investigations into Apple in the wake of Spotify's complaint last year. The first investigation is into the App Store and its mandatory in-app purchase system and into Spotify's allegations. The second investigation is in Apple Pay. In particular, the fact that though iPhones and iPads have universal near-field communication chips, or NFC, only Apple Pay can be used on those devices. In contrast, Samsung phones, for example, can use both Samsung Pay and Google Pay. As there is no deadline for investigations, who knows when or if formal charges will be filed, but if found in violation, Apple could also be subject to a fine equaling 10% of its annual turnover. With that said, let's talk about them both. So, why does this matter? Before we get into the usual laundry list of practices it's significant in, it once again shows us antitrust bodies' interest in tech companies. Big tech, whether we've paid attention or not, has resulted in regulatory and antitrust bodies playing catch-up in how best to, let's be honest, rein them in. Both Apple and Amazon present one-stop shops in ways not previously seen before our generation. Amazon, for example, is a marketplace 
a seller in that marketplace, and therefore competition for other sellers in that marketplace, a fulfillment center for that marketplace, and beyond the story, a streaming service, a film and television studio, a book publisher, a cloud computing platform, a food grocer, and a number of other businesses. You can see it would be tempting for them to tout their products before anyone else is on any of their platforms. But equally, you can see why that is an issue for an antitrust body and consumers. In fact, for some real-life illustration, I have the Audible app on my iPhone. However, because of the 30% in-app purchase tax, I can't buy any audiobooks on my iPhone. I have to go on the Audible website on a computer. Of course, this would incentivize me to start listening to audiobooks on the Apple equivalent, which doesn't really create a level playing field for Audible and other e-readers available on the App Store. I bring that up for two reasons. First, to show you I am a multifaceted man with hobbies beyond the surface. I listen to audiobooks. I am so interesting. Second, such an illustration once again grounds the story in reality. In your day-to-day, you too may have been a spectator in allegedly anti-competitive practices between tech companies as a consumer. I've said this before, but the more we see commercial awareness in the things we do, the more interesting it becomes in developing it, and further, the easier it becomes for you to personally see what sectors and practices interest you. But back to the analysis, like in episode 58 and the EC's investigation into an automotive industry merger for its impact on the market for commercial delivery vans, this investigation also emphasizes how significant e-commerce currently is and will continue to be. All of these stories of the high street's demise have, in large part, been due to the rise in online spending. This makes antitrust investigations into all aspects of online commerce significant for the stakeholders involved. And understanding this helps us better predict the problems potential clients in the sector may face, regardless of the pandemic. If your client is a big tech company, practices that favor the items in one's ecosystem may result in hefty fines for anti-competitive behavior. A relatively recent example is Google's 2.4 billion euro fine in 2017 imposed by the EC for using its Android phones to impose native Google apps on users in a way that was unfair to rival apps. Therefore, big tech companies' lawyers should be suggesting internal governance practices that ensure the companies do not unlawfully use their positions as both marketplace and seller and ensure all employees actually follow those practices. Further, it may also be worth suggesting efficient company structures that avoid the temptation of, or inevitability of, anti-competitive practices. It's no secret that there have been calls to break up big tech companies like Amazon, but that is easier said than done. Therefore, suggesting practices and company structures that best avoid those infractions and fines should be on the card, with or without the pandemic. As for other tech clients, they may be alleged victims of the walled gardens big tech companies have created in their products and services, making competition quite difficult. Building cases to make antitrust complaints, like Spotify's lawyers did, is equally on the cards and is probably in the best interests of those clients. Therefore, laundry list time, this is a retail issue, a tech issue, an innovation issue, a corporate governance issue, and an antitrust issue. It's also an issue that I think any of you can find a personal anecdote with that will help you internalize and explain it in any interview scenario or conversation with peers, as I mentioned previously. So, in the next week, reassess how you engage with whatever company is in question, and ask yourself whether you can actually see some anti-competitive practices 
and what your solutions would be. And alternatively, maybe you don't see an issue with any of this. Maybe companies should be able to reap the benefits of great diversification and good acquisitions. If so, I'd love to hear how best you'd reconcile the conflict between the parties. And who knows, maybe you've just found your calling working in an antitrust practice for our modern-day conglomerates. I say that partly in jest, but that alternate view is, in all fairness, a little valid. Of course, it is not favorable for the consumer if there are nothing but walled gardens on the internet. Imagine if you could only watch YouTube on an Android, and needed an Amazon device to use Audible, and even more bizarrely, a Spotify phone to listen to Spotify. The antitrust body's role is quite clear when illustrated like this, but there is also something to be said about a company that has created a good ecosystem for itself. Should it not be allowed to reap the rewards of its business? In saying this, I also don't want to act like competition within these services hasn't been beneficial either. Amazon having Kindle available on devices other than the Kindle, I am sure has been profitable for them. The same way Apple Music is available on Androids. But seeing that there is an argument to be had for both sides of the debate will help you determine where you stand and along the way create your own justification about antitrust powers and how far-reaching they should be. And as for UK application, after the 31st of December, these may be investigations the CMA may begin as well. E-commerce is borderless, and any European Commission action may lay down a marker for any future Competition and Markets Authority action, and may even better prepare lawyers in the UK for what is to come. So, to summarize, e-commerce, very important, walled gardens, bad for consumers, EU antitrust action may indicate what future UK antitrust action will be. And next week, we'll hear if another battle Apple is fighting against the European Commission, but in different practice areas. Credit for this story goes to Shona Ghosh, Mary Hanbury, Fu Yun-Chi, John Porter, the European Commission, Dana Mattioli, Valentina Pop, Sam Sheshner, Leo Kellyan, and Tom Warren. For the second and final read, let's talk about a recent lawsuit filed across the pond concerning Sherlock Holmes and Netflix. It's hard to start this without sounding like an ad. So, to begin, this is not an ad. The podcast thus far has never had a sponsored story, and if we ever did, I'd make it very clear. With that said, so Netflix has this new movie coming out called Enola Holmes. It stars Millie Bobby Brown as the titular character, and is based on a series of books by Nancy Springer, an American author, detailing what we can call a new era in the Sherlock stories, where Sherlock Holmes has a teenage sister, Enola, who solves mysteries as well, much to the chagrin of her older brothers, Mycroft and Sherlock. In the wake of this release, the estate of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes novels, has sued Netflix, the movie's distributor, Legendary Pictures, the movie's production company, Penguin Random House, the Enola Holmes book series publisher, and Nancy Springer, the book's author, for copyright infringement. To figure out why, let's take a little detour and learn a little about intellectual property. I think the best place to start with any IP conversation is to explain why it exists in basic English. In a nutshell, if you want to encourage people to create things, society has decided that the creator should be entitled to exclusive use or profit from the thing they create, 
or at the very least, protected against other people from copying that thing for a period of time. Of course, there are many forms of IP protection focusing on all kinds of creation, providing different periods of protection or exclusive use or protection from copying. The form of IP protection primarily in question today is copyright. In most of Europe, including the UK, copyright gives the creator of any literary, dramatic, musical, or artistic work the right to not be copied for the duration of the creator's life, plus an additional 70 years after their death. This right comes automatically and does not have to be registered. Create something, boom, copyright protection. But once an author has been dead for 70 years, their work is no longer protected under copyright, and it enters into the public domain, meaning that it is now owned by, well, the public, everyone, or better yet, no one. People can now do with that work whatever they see fit. It is now part of the common consciousness. So, using that rule, since Sir Arthur Conan Doyle died in 1930, his works are and have been in the public domain in the UK and Europe since 2000. This means that anyone could copy, possess, and more importantly, adapt the stories of Sherlock Holmes in Europe without needing to pay for the licensing of copyright from the estate of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. However, it's a little more complicated across the pond. In the US, there are actually two systems of copyright in place until the 1st of January 2073. For anything created after 1978, it works pretty much the same as the European system. Create something, copyright comes automatically, and lasts for the life of the author plus another 70 years. This is by virtue of the Copyright Act 1976, which only came into effect on the 1st of January 1978. But for works before 1978, copyright traditionally had to be registered. When registered, they enjoyed protection for up to 28 years, and in the 28th year, one could renew copyright protection for another 28 years. But two pieces of legislation, the aforementioned Copyright Act of 1976 and the Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998, changed the renewal term for works registered before 1978 from 28 years to 47 years, then 67 years respectively. This means that, in effect, any work published before the 1st of January 1978 will not have its copyright protection expire until 95 years after its publication date. In case that wasn't clear, in the US, post-1978, life of author plus 70 years. Pre-1978, 95 years after the date of publication. Applying this to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's books, they all come under this 95-year system. Conan Doyle published his first Sherlock story in 1887 and his final in 1927. He died in 1930. So, even though all of his books entered into the public domain in the UK and Europe in 2000, since copyright expires 70 years after the author's death, in the US, 1927 plus 95, some of Conan Doyle's final books remain protected until 2022. Now, you might be wondering, sure, some are protected, but just how does Conan Doyle's estate know how to differentiate the books that are in the public domain and the books that aren't? This is where it gets interesting. Their argument is 
the stories not yet in the public domain have a clear distinguishing factor to the stories currently in the public domain, and it is that, in general, Sherlock is a nicer person. In the complaint, they detail that the books still protected under copyright were written after Doyle faced tragedy in his life, which led to him writing a warmer Sherlock. In the complaint's words, and this is a long quote, quote, After the stories that are now in the public domain, and before the copyrighted stories, the Great War happened. In World War I, Conan Doyle lost his eldest son, Arthur Allen Kingsley. Four months later, he lost his brother, Brigadier General Inez Doyle. When Conan Doyle came back to Holmes in the copyrighted stories between 1923 and 1927, it was no longer enough that the Holmes character was the most brilliant, rational, and analytical mind. Holmes needed to be human. The character needed to develop human connection and empathy. Conan Doyle made the surprising artistic decision to have his most famous character, known around the world as a brain without a heart, develop into a character with the heart. Holmes became warmer. He became capable of friendship. He could express emotion. He began to respect women. End quote. So, in short, their argument is, at least until 2022, if you depict a Sherlock who is nice, warm, can express emotion, or in their words, respects women, you are infringing on their copyright. And as odd as that may sound, there is actually some precedent here. In 2013, an American attorney, writer, and Sherlock Holmes aficionado named Leslie Klinger wanted to release a book titled In the Company of Sherlock Holmes. It was an anthology of original short stories using characters from the Sherlock Holmes canon. However, when the estate of Conan Doyle caught wind of this, they wanted Klinger's publisher to pay a licensing fee for the copyright of Sherlock Holmes, threatening to prevent the distribution and, therefore, financial success of the book. In response, Klinger sought a summary judgment from the court in Illinois to declare and confirm that the majority of Sherlock Holmes' stories were in the public domain in the U.S., and authors would not have to pay a licensing fee for the copyright of Sherlock to Conan Doyle's estate. For the Doyle estate's part, they tried to argue that because Sherlock was a complex and changing character, so long as any iterations of Sherlock's character development were still protected, all of Sherlock had to be protected. The court rejected this argument, saying that only the original elements added in the later stories would remain protected. In effect, this meant that the character development points in the later stories, such as Watson being married a second time, and Holmes growing to like dogs, were still protected under copyright, and someone wishing to adapt stories using those character traits would be subject to a licensing fee until 2022. Those are the two examples the judges mentioned. With those examples in mind, since we're here, let's do a bit of research ourselves. It seems that Watson remarries in a story titled The Adventures of the Blanched Soldier, which was published on the 16th of October, 1926. If we add 95, that means that enters the public domain next year, 2021. So, till next year, if you depict Watson with a wife other than Mary Morstan, it's copyright infringement. I have no idea if the Netflix movie does so. As for the other character point the judges mentioned, of Sherlock liking dogs, it seems that first mention of Sherlock expressly liking dogs is in a story titled The Adventures of Shoscombe Old Place, published on the 5th of March, 1927 in the US. If we add 95, 
That means this character trait enters the public domain in 2022. So, until then, any Sherlock depicted must not like dogs, or else the publisher is at risk of infringing copyright. Again, no idea if Sherlock in the Netflix movie has any engagement with dogs. But this activity that I've just done, looking at Sherlock canon and picking out character traits, will be one both the lawyers of the plaintiffs and the defendants will be busy doing as we speak. Somewhere out there is a trainee whose task it is to read every canonical writing about Sherlock Holmes by Doyle, and if their firm represents the estate of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, they'll be looking for examples in all books pre-1926 now that depict a colder Sherlock. This will be to prove that a warmer Sherlock is unique to the still-copyrighted stories, meaning the estate is due the costs of copyright infringement. As for the trainee of the firm representing the defendants, it'll be their task to comb through the older Sherlock stories, looking for snippets where Sherlock is nice, warm, and respects women, to prove that these character traits are not unique to the copyrighted stories. They may even go further, trying to show similar traits of public domain Sherlock in print to the Sherlock in any early footage of the upcoming film, played by Henry Cavill, to prove that all characteristics and inspiration of the character came from the stories in the public domain. And, with a little reflection, it does sound like an odd task, but tasks like this are and have been common for any firms involved in the media and entertainment sector, to which many of the firms you can name off the top of your head are. Why does this matter? Because, like the first story, it presents modern problems and the modern solutions they may require. We are in the middle of an era where many successful book series are being adapted into some sort of film or TV spin-off. For better or for worse. The media and entertainment lawyers advising those production companies and studios would have liaised with the authors and negotiated a license fee to be allowed to adapt the work. That means your Harry Potter, your Hunger Games, your Twilight series, all subject to copyright protection, hence requiring negotiation and licensing from the authors. Where that issue becomes complicated is when the IP exists in the pre-1978 system in the US and the different system in the UK. And as films and shows become more readily available internationally with the proliferation of streaming services, it will likely fall on the lawyers to ensure that the production of a film will not result in those adapting it facing legal action. Kind of like what's happening now. Sherlock is merely today's example, but there are a few more that exist that you may have not been aware of. Take The Great Gatsby, for example. F. Scott Fitzgerald's magnum opus published in 1925, but he died in 1940. That means that in the UK and Europe, it's been in the public domain and free for adaptation since 2010, but only entered the public domain in the US this year. This meant that for a decade, it existed in a bit of an adaptation limbo, meaning its 2013 remake film starring Leonardo DiCaprio didn't need licensing in the UK, but probably needed it for distribution in the US. Even more stark is J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and Hobbit novels. The Hobbit was published in 1937, Lord of the Rings was published in 1954, Tolkien died in 1973. Meaning The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings both enter the public domain in the UK and Europe in 2043, 70 years after the author's death, but in the US, because both books were published before 1978, The Hobbit enters the public domain in 2032, and The Lord of the Rings only enters the public domain in 2049. 
This means that if, let's say, in 2043, once both novels are in the public domain in the UK and The Hobbit is in the public domain in the US, a distributor and TV production company may seek to make an origin series detailing the life of Gandalf, believing they don't have to pay a licensing fee to the estate of J.R.R. Tolkien. But Gandalf is also in The Lord of the Rings. So what shades of the character will still be protected by copyright? Thus, firms with offices in multiple jurisdictions or global partner offices may be best suited to assist media and entertainment clients dealing with these questions that may persist until 2073 and beyond, since the world doesn't subscribe to an identical IP system. But we're not done there. Any good IP lawyer seeks multiple forms of IP protection for their client. This story is no different. Sherlock Holmes by name is also a protected trademark in the US. Another quick aside, what's a trademark? Interchangeable with brand if we're being colloquial, it's the mark, symbol, name, slogan a seller uses to differentiate themselves from other sellers in whatever class of business, be it clothing, books, entertainment, food, drink, and so on. To give some examples, Just Do It is a trademark slogan protected by Nike. The name Nike is also trademark protected, as is the swoosh, the Nike tick. What's unique to a trademark compared to copyright is, copyright has an expiration date, whereas a trademark when registered can be renewed every 10 years for, well, eternity. And though a Supreme Court judgment in the US frowned upon using trademark protection to overextend expired copyright, such double protection is still legal. This would mean that, at least in theory, Anyone making a film or TV series Sherlock Holmes related to be distributed in the US with the title Sherlock Holmes is potentially infringing on the Conan Doyle estate's trademark on the name as it pertains to, quote, entertainment services, namely production of motion pictures, television dramas, stage plays, and radio programs, end quote. One could argue that the title Enola Holmes is different enough to the name Sherlock Holmes to not be trademark infringement, but since the estate could argue that the name Enola Holmes may cause confusion to customers in its relation to Sherlock Holmes, they could have a case. There is actually precedent to this as well, as the estate sued production company Miramax hmm, over the 2015 film Mr. Holmes, starring Sir Ian McKellen for both copyright and trademark infringement. For that reason, I'd like to imagine that Netflix and Co.'s lawyers would have conducted a quick search to at least be aware of this trademark's existence, and must have known that the estate wouldn't have let this movie get released without a fight. But if I had to predict how this ends, it will probably be a very anticlimactic settlement. The Mr. Holmes suit ended in a settlement, and this new movie is due to be released in a few months. It's also worth mentioning, if you were thinking it, the estate's website shows that BBC's Sherlock series starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman was created under a licensing agreement with the estate, as were the Guy Ritchie Sherlock films produced by Warner Brothers and the elementary TV show produced by CBS. It simply seems that most studios and production companies have found it easier to play nice with the estate than fight for the sake of the public domain. So we'll see which path Netflix and Legendary Pictures take in response to this suit. Either way, this has given us a chance to consider the incongruence of IP law between the US and the UK, and the issues it may present for a while yet. It has also given us an opportunity to once again talk about some practices we may have mentioned before, such as IP, 
But talk about a sector we don't mention often enough in the podcast, media and entertainment. I think the last time we spoke about media and entertainment was the Taylor Swift story in episode 20. In retrospect, if I was going to talk about Taylor Swift, I don't know about you, but it should have been episode 22. Really missed an opportunity there. Back to analysis, like the first story, it once again presents you with more accessible commercial awareness Easter eggs you can find in your daily life. We've really covered all day-to-day basis for your commercial awareness this week. Netflix, Apple, Spotify, Amazon. But let this be a reminder, once again, that commercial awareness is much more accessible than we at times think. When Enola Holmes finally does come out, you can tell your non-listener friends about the lawsuit. They may not be interested to hear about a lawsuit, but you can try. And much further than that, when it's the mid-2040s and you're a partner and expert in media and entertainment, when a studio informs you of their intention to make a series about Gandalf, tell them to wait till 2049. But with that said, some significant questions about the story. First, with the estate's argument. In this scenario, is it a valid argument to find copyright protection within the development of a character between stories? If this case was ruled on its merits, would arguing that Sherlock is warmer in the still-copyrighted works be successful, in your opinion? Otherwise, how should U.S. courts reconcile the copyright gaps that may exist until 2073? Could one also argue that a new author changing a public domain character's personality is just a matter of creative expression? And finally, more generally, should trademarks be able to essentially undercut the expiration dates of copyright? Is that beneficial to what we call the public domain? How do we reconcile a creator's rights and the need for a public domain for further creativity? It's also worth mentioning in closing that the aforementioned U.S. trademark will be open for third-party opposition on the 18th of August this year, so it may not be a trademark for much longer. The game is afoot. Credit for this story goes to A.D. Robertson, Eric Gardner, Tom McCarthy, Mary Frankel, Leslie S. Klinger v. Conan Doyle Estate Limited, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and the estate of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This has been the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Please be sure to follow, subscribe, and rate the podcast on your listening platform. It goes a long way. Also, recommend it to a friend. If you need to contact me, the podcast email address is on the first line of the episode description. And the podcast Instagram page is at comawarepod, that is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D, if you prefer to contact me there or just want to follow the podcast there for any updates. The podcast Instagram page is also a way to interact with the podcast where you can participate in polls to reflect on past episodes and suggest topics for future episodes. Other than that, thank you for listening, and you'll hear from me next week.